I just don't know what to do. What do you mean? Like, what do we say? I don't know. Introduce yourself. You introduce yourself. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Welcome to our podcast. I'm Kirsten. You missed a spot. True crimes and story times. <laughs> I'm Michelle. I'm Kirsten. And I'm doing the story time episode today. Hell yeah. Wow, wow, wow. <laughs> we still need to get that soundboard. I know. <laughs> Alright. Anyway. I'm doing two different things today because I feel like I always find one thing that's like super interesting but I don't really feel like it's long enough. Mm-hmm. So I did a... I decided to do two different things today. Okay. So the first thing we're going to be talking about is Mel's Hole. Okay. Um, pretty Never crazy. Heard of it. Pretty crazy. Never yeah. heard of it. Okay. So um, many locals apparently claim to know about the hole, but it didn't become a phenomena until 1997 when Mel Walters went on the Coast to Coast radio show with Art Bell. Waters. Is it Waters or Walters? Waters. Okay. Did I say Walters? You said Walters. Mel Waters. Mel okay. Waters. Okay. My bad. Okay. So, the legend of the bottomless hole started on February 21st of 1997. Okay. Waters claimed that he owned a rural property nine miles west of Ellensburg in Kittitas County, Washington, that contained a mysterious hole. A mysterious hole. Yeah, and we're talking about Washington, like this state, not like Washington, D.C. Okay. By the way. So, it was also thought that the hole is about 10 miles west of town on a place called Manistache Ridge. Okay. Um, long before anyone heard of Mel Waters, people in Ellensburg were talking about a hole so deep that it wouldn't fill up. Weird. Jay Nickel, 34, who grew up in Ellensburg, remembers a hole about seven miles from Manistash Ridge, where, as a teenager, he and his buddies rode dirt bikes. Okay. On a few occasions, they came across a hole that sounds like Mel's. Too deep to see the bottom, and rocks hurled down, it made no sound. And when rocks are hurled down. Couldn't hear it. Nope. Weird. Yeah. Trish Swanson, who works at Central Washington University, recently drove past a hole that some friends joked was Mel's. Rodney, who worked at a snowmobile dealership in town and wouldn't give his last name, said a hole on the ridge, or at least the story of one, has been common knowledge in town for decades. Okay. Lots of people talk about it, he said. Could be something out there, but I've never seen it. <laughs> so now we're going to talk about what mel waters said on the show 
He said, I brought the dogs with me. They wouldn't go anywhere near the damn thing. <laughs> and also, birds would apparently avoid the hole. <laughs> they wouldn't fly over it. Nothing. Weird. Yeah. They would just, like, go out of their way to fly around it. <laughs> Weird. So, according to Waters, people would dump their trash and occasionally a dead cow or two down the hole. What the heck? A dead cow yeah. or two Yeah. down the hole? Mm-hmm. So, the... They're like, bye. Bye, bitch. Down the hole you go. Yeah, I guess they didn't want to use the meat or anything. They just throw it down the hole. Thanks. So, when this hole never filled up, everybody was like, where's all the stuff going? Yeah. Water said the hole had a three-foot stone wall around it. And according to him, the hole had an unknown depth of at least 80,000 feet. Dang. He claimed to have measured its depth using a fishing line and a weight, although he still had not hit the bottom by the time 80,000 feet of line had been used. Dang. Quote, what I did was I sent down a roll of lifesavers, he said. So, when it hit water, the lifesavers would dissolve. Okay. But, if you guys have been throwing trash and stuff down there, is there going to be water? I mean, if it rains. Yeah, I guess so. The lifesavers came back up whole, no water. So, how deep was this hole? Hole, hole. <laughs> hole, hole, hole. Two different types. He also claimed that his neighbor's dead dog had been seen alive sometime after it was thrown into the hole. Quote, one guy claims that he threw his departed canine down into the hole. He swears the dog actually came back to him. What the heck? And apparently, there was a black beam coming from the hole. So, like, you would look up in the sky and you would see, like, a black beam. Whoa. Yeah. Okay. And when you brought a radio to the hole, it would start playing things from the past. What the fuck? Yeah. Weird. It's a haunted hole. Mm-hmm. According to Waters, the hole's magical properties prompted U.S. federal agents to seize the land and fund his relocation to Australia. Hmm. Waters said after he went public that soldiers in yellow gear cordoned off his property and threatened to find a drug lab on it if he didn't cooperate oh so, so the government's like you better get out of here or else or else yeah uh waters made guest appearances on bell's show in 1997 2000 and 2002 rebroadcasts of those appearances have helped create what's been described as a modern rural myth the exact location of the hole was unspecified, yet several people claimed to have seen it, such as Gerald R. Osborne, who used the ceremonial name Red Elk, who described himself as an intertribal medicine man, half-breed Native American and half-white. He told reporters in 2012 he visited the hole many times since 1961. Hmm. So he was like all about this hole. Mm -hmm. Well, if he visited it, then why don't you take people to it? Right. So, Red Elk claimed the U.S. government maintained a top-secret base there. Hmm. Top an secret? Like underground base. <laughs> right. <laughs> Quote, an underground base. A very small underground base, he said. That's a small-ass base. Yeah. Very small. Very underground. Small underground base. <laughs> base. Base. I very said, small. I said base. Oh. <laughs> Base. underground vase yeah that's very small Eighty thousand feet down there i don't know oxygen hello right 
so pressure think about the pressure yeah that would no that would like your head would explode yeah like gravity that's a thing that's how red elk explains the white boxes covering the area on some satellite images i didn't see any but Okay. He believes there is also alien activity. I mean, it's weird, but it's not that weird. Yeah, a huge space, 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 a huge spacecraft. <laughs> Gosh, a huge spacecraft one will appear and hover over the hole. He said. Hmm. That's what he said. Alien babies. He was, they were collecting their little alien babies. Maybe that's their hovering like, over the hole. It's like larva. They drop them down on the hole. And then they, like, you Fertilize. know, like, mm-hmm. and, and then, they, yep, they just suck, suck them right back, back out. <laughs> that's our theory. Yep. So that's what he said happens during summer solstice when spacemen load and unload things at the hole before flying away. Interesting. That supports our theory. Mm-hmm. Uh, Red Elk said, this is an endless hole. I think we get the point. Yeah. It's an endless hole. You can't find the bottom. Right. People get it confused when I call this the devil's hole, is what he also said, because that's a different thing. Oh. I think it's like a more paranormal thing. Mm Mm-hmm. So, Ellensburg Public Library historian Milton Waggy said the story became a sensation after Waters went on the radio. He said the phone rang off the hook with all kinds of stories about the hole, some explainable, some not. He is still trying to solve the mystery of what happened to the library's file on Mel's hole. Oh. Quote, well, it just disappeared, which lends itself to the mysteriousness of Mel's hole. Did Mel take it? Did it just kind of rise out of the locked file cabinet? You never know. There might be a hole out there. End quote. Pat Pringle, a geologist with the State Department of Natural Resources, said the area's landscaped landscape formed more than 12 million years ago by a volcanic lahar makes a hole of such depth unlikely hmm. he admitted that odd things exist in nature but doubts a hole like mel's is possible in the brittle volcanic rock near here makes sense. kind of makes sense yeah. yeah even if it is he's sure the heat of the earth would snap a fishing line long before it reached eighty thousand feet yeah Local news reporters who investigated the claims found no public records of anyone named Mel Waters ever residing in or owning property in Kittitas County. What the heck? He could have just been using, like, a an alias, so mm-hmm. he, like, didn't put his real name out there, you know? Right. According to State Department of Natural Resources, geologist Jack Powell, the hole does not exist and is geologically impossible. I mean, it is kind of impossible. Yeah. A hole of that depth would collapse into itself under the tremendous pressure and heat from the surrounding strata, said Powell. He also said an ordinary old mine shaft on private property was probably the inspiration for the stories and commented that Mel's Hole had established itself itself as a legend based on no evidence at all. Yep. At the Northwest Museum of Legends and Lore, Phil Lipson said he's heard the stories. Well, I believe there is a hole, Lipson said. But he's never seen the hole, even though he's led expeditions to find it. Hmm. Quote, I think it's actually a true event, just something that's never been totally uncovered, he said. And to this day, no one's been able to find it since that famous radio conversation. What? 
So, even though like there's a lot of people that say they have seen it, yeah, and this and Red Elk, yeah, who has, has said been to he's it seen multiple it, times, yeah, since 1961, but they can't find it. And apparently, there's a black beam that shoots out of it. So, what you see that, or a UFO that hovers over it mm-hmm. that drops their babies Weird. in and sucks them back out. Yeah, <laughs> weird. That was a good one. Yeah. I've never heard of that before. Yeah. Interesting. I thought it was pretty crazy. Yeah. If you have seen the black hole, let us know. <laughs> or the, I mean the- Mel's hole. Mel's hole. Yeah. Black hole. Let us know. Let us know. If you put your dog in there and it came back to life, let us know. Yeah. Or like discarded of some dead cows. Yeah. Into or your the trash. <laughs> into the hole. Or you dropped some lifesavers down there in some fishing line. 80,000 feet Shoot us an down. email. Yeah. yeah. Let us know. <laughs> So, the second thing we're going to talk about is Kuru. This is pretty crazy. Never heard of it. The way you tilted the way you tilted your head, you said, pretty, It is pretty crazy. Pretty crazy. So, Kuru is a rare, incurable, and fatal neurodegenerative disorder that was formerly common among the four people of Papua New Guinea. Okay. Kuru is a form of transmissible spongy form encephalopathy 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 see i looked up the pronunciation but i forgot okay we're just gonna call it tse okay it's caused by the transmission of abnormally folded proteins or prions which leads to symptoms such as tremors and loss of coordination from neurodegeneration okay so we're going to get into why it's caused by folded proteins. Okay. okay, okay, okay. So the term kuru derives from the forward kuria or guria, or it means to shake. Due to the body tremors that are a classic symptom of the disease, kuru itself means trembling. Okay. It is also known as the laughing sickness due to the pathologic bursts of laughter, which are also a symptom of the disease weird it is now widely accepted that kuru was transmitted among members of the four tribe of Papua new guinea via funerary cannibalism cannibalism deceased family members were traditionally cooked and eaten which was thought to help free the spirit of the dead what women and children usually consume the brain what the organ in which infectious prions were most concentrated thus allowing for transmission of kuru what the actual fuck yeah i told you i was going to fuck you up with this one <laughs> i told you i was going to fuck you up with this what one bro what the fuck dude yeah. okay let's continue i guess <laughs> so the disease was therefore more prevalent among women and children because they, they ate, ate the, brain. the brain and now you know why cannibalism. no cannibals have ate the brain yeah Yeah. oh they don't never heard of a meat in the brain have you (laughs) everything but yeah i've never heard of a cannibal eating the brain maybe this is why Hmm. the epidemic likely started when a villager developed sporadic kreutzfeld jacob disease and died when villagers ate the brain they contracted the disease and it was then spread to other villagers who ate their infected brains so it's just a cycle yeah ripple effect while the four people stopped consuming human meat in the early 1960s when it was first speculated to be transmitted via 
endocannibalism. The disease lingered due to Kuru's long incubation period of anywhere from 10 to over 50 years. Wow. The epidemic finally declined sharply after half a century, from 200 deaths per year in 1957 to no deaths from at least 2010 onwards. With sources disagreeing on whether the last known Kuru victim died in 2005 or 2009. Hmm. So this is a real thing. Mm Mm-hmm. Kuru, a transmissible spongiform encephalopathy, or a disease of the nervous system that causes physiological and neurological effects, which ultimately lead to death. It is characterized by progressive cerebellar ataxia, or loss of coordination and control over muscle movements. The preclinical or asymptomatic phase, also called the incubation period, averages 10 to 13 years, but can be as short as 5 and has been estimated to last as long as 50 years or more after initial exposure. Years? Years. Dang. The clinical stage, which begins at the first onset of symptoms, lasts an average of 12 months. You go through this for a whole year? Yeah. The clinical progression of Kuru is divided into three specific stages, the ambulant, sedentary, and terminal stages. While there is some variation in these stages between individuals, they are highly conserved among the affected population. Before the onset of clinical symptoms, an individual can also present with prodromal symptoms, including headache and joint pain in the legs. In the first stage, the infected individual may exhibit unsteady stance and gait, decreased muscle control, tremors, difficulty pronouncing words, and tremors to debation. This stage is named the ambulant because the individual is still able to walk around despite symptoms. In the second stage, the infected individual is incapable of walking without support and suffers ataxia and severe tremors. Furthermore, the individual shows signs of emotional instability and depression, yet exhibits uncontrolled and sporadic laughter. Despite the other neurological symptoms, tendon reflexes are still intact at this stage of the disease. 
In the third and final stage, the infected individual's existing symptoms, like ataxia, progress to the point where it is no longer possible to sit up without support. Dang. So, like a baby. Mm-hmm. New symptoms also emerge. The individual develops dysphagia, which can lead to severe malnutrition and may also become incontinent, lose the ability or will to speak, and become unresponsive to their surroundings despite maintaining consciousness. Towards the end of the terminal stage, patients often develop chronic ulcerated wounds that can be easily infected. An infected person usually dies within three months to two years after the first terminal stage symptoms, often because of pneumonia or other secondary infections. (laughs) Kuru is largely localized to the four people and people with whom they intermarried. The four people ritualistically cooked and consumed body parts of their family members following their death to incorporate the body of the of the dead person into the bodies of the living relatives thus helping to free the spirit of the dead what the fuck yeah i mean i'm not gonna i'm not gonna knock on their rituals man but like how are you gonna eat these people it's a whole different culture out there that's true and this is like way back not saying that it's right but it's, it's definitely messed up. Yeah, but for sure. that was their culture, and mm-hmm. it's not like you could just Google, should I eat human brains? Right. So. I get that. And I wouldn't Google that anyways, because I don't think about that. Right. So, because the brain is the organ enriched in the infectious prion, women and children who consume the brain had much higher likelihood of being infected than men who preferentially consumed muscles. Okay. The infectious agent is a misfolded form of a host-encoded protein called prion, PRP. Prion proteins are encoded by the prion protein gene, PRNP. The two forms of prion are designated as PRPC, which is a normally folded protein, and PRPSC, a misfolded form, which gives rise to the disease. Okay. In 1961, Australian medical researcher Michael Alpers conducted extensive field studies among the four accompanied by anthropologist Shirley Lindenbaum. Their historical research suggested the epidemic may have originated around 1900 from a single individual who lived on the edge of four territory and who was thought to have spontaneously developed some form of Crutzfeld-Jacob disease. Alpers and Lindenbaum's research conclusively demonstrated that Kuru spread easily and rapidly in the four people due to their endocannibalistic funeral practices, in which relatives consume the bodies of the dead to return the person's life force to the hamlet, a four-societal subunit. Okay. So basically, it was just their culture back then. Mm-hmm. That's what they did. Yeah. Corpses of family members were often buried for days, then exhumed once the corpses were colonized by insect larvae, at which point the corpse would be dismembered and served with the larvae as a side dish. What the fuck? That's disgusting. Yeah. As if it wasn't already disgusting enough. Right. I told you, bro. It was a surprise, and I fucked you up, didn't I? That was a surprise. That was a surprise. The demographic distribution evident in the infection rates, Kuru, was eight to nine times more prevalent in women and children than in men at its peak. Is beca- oh, It's because four men considered consuming human flesh to weaken them in times of conflict or battle, 
while the women and children were more likely to eat the bodies of the deceased, including the brain, where the prion particles were par- particularly concentrated, mm-hmm. which we already really talked about. Mm-hmm. The strong possibility exists that it was passed on to women and children more easily because they took on the task of cleaning their relatives after death and might have had open sores and cuts on their hands. Gotcha. Although ingestion of the prion particles can lead to the disease, a high degree of transmission occurred if the prion particles could reach the subcutaneous tissue. With elimination of cannibalism because of Australian colonial law enforcement and the local Christian missionaries' efforts, Alper's research showed that Kuru was already declining among the four by the mid-1960s. However, the mean incubation period of the disease is 14 years, and seven cases were reported with latencies of 40 years or more for those who are most genetically resilient, continuing to appear for several more decades. Sources disagree onto whether the last person with Kuru died in 2005 or 2009. Okay. So, in 2009, researchers at the Medical Research Council discovered a naturally occurring variant of a prion protein in a population from Papua New Guinea that confers strong resistance to Kuru. This study began in 1996. Researchers assessed over 3,000 people from the affected and surrounding eastern highland populations and identified a variation in the prion protein G127. G127 polymorphism is the result of a missense mutation and is highly geographically restricted to regions where the Kuru epidemic was most widespread. So, if you went there to Papua New Guinea, compared to here, they would 
obviously have like more of the mutation right researchers believe that the prnp variant occurred very recently estimating that the most recent common ancestor lived 10 generations ago dang yeah so not that far off Mm -hmm. the findings of the study could help researchers better understand and develop treatments for other related prion diseases such as Crutzfeld-Jacob disease and Alzheimer's disease. Hmm. Kuru was first described in official reports by Australian officers patrolling the eastern highlands of Papua New Guinea in the early 1950s. Some unofficial accounts place Kuru in the region as early as 1910. In 1951, Arthur Carey was the first to use the term Kuru in a report to describe a new disease afflicting the four tribes of Papua New Guinea. In his report, Carey noted that Kuru mostly afflicted four women, eventually killing them. Kuru was noted in the four, Yate, and Usurufa. I'm going to redo that. Okay. Usurufu. Nope. Usurufa. Mm-hmm. Usurufa. Okay. Kuru was noted in the four, Yate, and Usufura. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> I Yusufura. said it backwards. You. Yusarufa. 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 Kuru was noted in the four Yate and Yusarufa people in 1952 to 1953 by anthropologists Ronald Burnett and Catherine Burnett. Okay. In 1953, Kuru was observed by patrol officer John MacArthur, who provided a description of the disease in his report. MacArthur believed that Kuru was merely a psychosomatic episode resulting from the sorcery practices of the tribal people in the region. After the disease had progressed into a larger epidemic, the tribal people asked Charles Farr, a Lutheran medical officer, to come to the area to report the disease to the Australian authorities. Initially, the four people believed the causes of Kuru to be sorcery or witchcraft. They also thought that the magic causing Kuru was contagious. It was also called Negi Nagi, which meant foolish person as the victims laughed at spontaneous intervals. This disease, the four people believed, was caused by ghosts because of the shaking and strange behavior that comes with Kuru. Attempting to cure this, they would feed victims pork and casuarina bark. When Kuru disease had become an epidemic, Daniel Carlton, Gajdasek, a virologist, and Vincent Zagas, a medical doctor, started research on the disease. In 1957, they published a report in the Medical Journal of Australia that suggested that Kuru had a genetic origin and that any ethic environmental variables that are operating in Kuru pathogenesis have not yet been determined. Cannibalism was suspected as a possible cause from the very beginning, but was not formally put forth as the hypothesis. Hypothesis. 
hypothesis? Cannibalism was suspected as a possible cause from the very beginning, but was not formally put forth as a hypothesis until 1967 by Glass and more formally in 1968 by Matthews, Glass, and Lindenbaum. Even before anthropophagy had been linked to Kuru, cannibalism was banned by the Australian administration of Papua New Guinea and the practice was nearly eliminated by 1960. While the number of cases of Kuru was decreasing, medical researchers were finally able to properly investigate Kuru, which eventually led to the modern understanding of prions as its cause. In an effort to understand the pathology of Kuru disease, uh, Gajdasek established the first experimental test on chimpanzees for Kuru at the National Institutes of Health. Michael Alpers, an Australian doctor, collaborated with Gajdasek by providing samples of brain tissues he had taken from an 11-year-old four-girl who had died of Kuru. In his work, Gajdasek was also the first to compile a bibliography of Kuru disease. Joe Gibbs joined Gajdasek to monitor the record of behavior on the apes at the NIH and conduct their autopsies. Within two years, one of the chimps, Daisy, had developed Kuru, demonstrating that an unknown disease factor was transmitted through infected biomaterial and that it was capable of crossing the species barrier barrier to other primates. So hmm. it wasn't just humans. Hmm. Weird. After Elizabeth Beck confirmed that this experiment had brought about the first experimental transmission of Kuru, the finding was deemed a very important advance in human medicine leading to the award of the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine to Gajdasek in 1976. Subsequently, E.J. Field spent large parts of the late 1960s and early 1970s in New Guinea investigating the disease, connecting it to scrappy and multiple sclerosis. He noted the disease's interactions with gelial cells, including the critical observation that the infectious process may depend on the structural rearrangement of the host molecules. 
and this was an early observation of what was to later become the prion hypothesis. Hmm. So, basically, you eat the bad prions, you get the kuru, you die. die. That's fucked up. Yeah, pretty crazy, huh? Eating people and getting sick, that's why you don't eat people. Yeah. Especially the brains. Right. Getting sick. And with the larvae? Yeah. I know. Gross, right? That was interesting, though. Well, anyways... I've never heard of either of those before. That is all. Mel's Hole and Kuru. Mm-hmm. I liked it. Good job. Hope you guys liked my story time episode. Next, Next week, week is going to be a little bit different. Funny that you said that at the same time. <laughs> I'm doing time. another story time. And Kirsten's doing her part two of her true crime case that'll be posted Friday. Yep. So make sure you check that out. Yes, please do. And subscribe to our Patreon. And give us a rating if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. Or Spotify. That too. Or anywhere if you can give a rating. Mm-hmm. And leave a review. Please, please. Because... We want to <clears> know how we're doing. Like, how you guys actually like us. We get a lot of um, listeners on Apple Podcasts. That's why I mainly said that. Mm. But well, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, give us a rating and a review. Please. We would appreciate it very, very much. Yes, we would. It would help better our podcast, our show for you guys. For sure. So. That's all I have for today. Alrighty. It was a good one. I liked it. Thanks. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you guys next time. See ya. Bye.